You are listening to Pursuing Justice on Society Bites Radio. I'm your host, Harriet Hendel. Last month, we spoke about juvenile life without parole with Marsha Levick, who started the Juvenile Law Center in Philadelphia in 1975, and Abdallah Latif, a man who served 31 years in prison from the time he was 17, having been given juvenile life without parole. Marsha Levick has a TED Talk in which she asks, is there justice for all in our criminal justice system? Today, we meet a friend of mine, someone I began corresponding with while she was doing time in Chowchilla Prison in California. At the age of 17, she was sentenced to spend the rest of her life in prison for killing her sex trafficker. This was back in 1994. We are more aware now about childhood trauma and how it impacts juveniles as it relates to the serious crimes they commit. In Sarah's case, there was a public appeal for clemency in 2009, spearheaded by Human Rights Watch and the Campaign for the Fair Sentencing of Youth. In 2013, Sarah was granted parole by then Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, who reduced and commuted her sentence. Sarah is with us today to share her story of not just survival, but her determination to become an advocate for children caught up in our justice system. Let's meet Sarah. Hi, Harriet. It's a pleasure. Hi. Hi. It's, it's a pleasure to have you on, Sarah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's great to have you on the program today. And I wanted just to begin with um, a very brief overview of something called Sarah's Law. But next time, not next time, because you'll be here next time, but in two weeks, we have a friend of yours coming on, James Dole, who started Human Rights for Kids. And he's going to give us more technical, detailed information about Sarah's Law. But what I wondered is um, if you could tell us how it came about. Mm -hmm. Yes, so James and I... um... It was a conversation about, it started out really uh, authentic in a space about the impacts of of children who have been trafficked and the fact that James and I related to both being survivors and victims of trafficking, it it just kind of spearheaded this, this opportunity to talk about what that could look like and then creating policy around it to raise awareness and um, changing the narrative, you know, um, giving judges and people in high positions the opportunity to really be fully informed of the individuals that they're going to be sentencing and what does that look like? And are they considering all the mitigating factors that contributed to the individual being in the space of um, being faced with a crime? Now, when you say changing the narrative, can you tell us what what you really mean by that? So by changing the narrative, yes. What what it is is like bringing into account 
the impacts of these of us as children, right? You have individuals who are in authority positions, they're judges, they're district attorneys, they're lawyers, um, but are they considering all the factors that contributed for the youth to be present in front of them at that particular time? Is it just the crime, right? And the seriousness and the violence around that crime? And are we looking at the mitigating factors, right? And um, how this has imp impacted the child itself. And then changing the narrative about being more inclusive and having more compassion and more understanding and tolerance and kindness. I like the word compassion very, very much. That's, that's great. And that's absolutely needed. Now, um, who sponsored this bill? Uh, Westerman. Yes. Yeah. And, and who, who was, tell us who that is. Congressman Westerman out, out of Arkansas. He's a Republican. It's a bipartisan piece. And I think that that's a very powerful, um, because it kind of like, we all have our political views and perspectives, right? Um, and sometimes we get married to those political approaches on how to create space for change and having the, the narrative. Um, the beautiful piece is that this particular legislation that's being presented kind of moves aside, right? Because it's bipartisan. It, it, it's like everyone can kind of get naked and have a conversation soulfully, right? Like, let's just, <laughs> let's just have this conversation about what that looks like. And as parents or um, people who are impacted, you know, like directly um, aware of children's needs, are our policies really reflecting that belief window that we want to, you know, inspire in our community? And there's this cognitive dissonance mm. in our policies. And this is just the beginning, right? We gotta lay some groundwork and really have some uncomfortable conversations. Um, it's definitely valuable, I think. Oh, for sure. I, I like what you just said. You, you really put it into, uh, I think, a very clear context. Um, so now, was he um, the only person sponsoring the bill, or are there others? There are others that sponsoring the bill. And it's, um, again, I really feel more comfortable with James handling that sure. particular policy piece because. Okay, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I love what I like, Sarah, is that it is, um, as you just said, it's bipartisan. Yes. And that's fantastic. That's really great. Um, what is it that drives your advocacy work? And can you tell us? maybe a little bit about what you're doing as an advocate. So <laughs> I didn't realize that I was an activist. I never, <laughs> I never even thought I was an activist or an advocate, you know, like these were labels that became more clear to me coming home. Like yeah. I just was in prison and the challenges um, that I, I experienced and then seeing people in the community experience, it just didn't, it just, it's innately, it, 
didn't feel good to my to the heart to the soul and um i think for some of us who've been incarcerated and you can you are directly impacted by not only your own pain and trauma but the pain and trauma of others in a concentrated environment um i guess it's just you really get to see where the core values lie you know within and um i just believed in people i just i just i just believe that you know the pain the ugliness the passing of that trauma onto each other wasn't the end all and i think that just transferred over into connecting and holding space defining what that looked like you know um and, and none of these roots, um, or shall I say the other way around, it didn't have any roots in prison. None of this was part of your time in prison. You, you're saying it happened more after you left? So the awareness of me being an advocate, right? The labeling or the identifying as activism or advocate or human rights defender, you know, it's just like we were, no, like in prison, I think there's these little beautiful pockets mm -hmm. of advocating for one another and just creating a sense of community innately. The connection is there. The root connections of human beings are there, you know, um, and it just transferred over, I guess. <laughs> How terrific is that? Um, so what are you actually so now that you have the label advocate, what are you actually doing right now uh, in your life that is under the umbrella of advocating? Having the conversation. Like I'm available um, to have the conversations and hopefully contribute from experience or bring others, right? Inclusivity, bringing others into the conversation. Seeing the, seeing the, um, repetitiveness, right? This is generational. This, these are, there are generational patterns that are completely obvious and evident. There are solutions to create the change in these patterns that cause harm. And then question or explore, are we doing enough with our resources to actually um, reimagine what it would look like in changing policy that is rooted in compassion and integrity and kindness and inclusivity. Um, you know, I think that's what true community represents. Oh, what do they say? It takes a village, right? Yes. To raise a child. So yes. you use the word harm just now. Yes. And you kind of opened the door to my next question. And that is, um, and as much as you want to share or not entirely up to you, um, what was the harm in your childhood years? Wow. <laughs> okay. Um, if that's the way you want to put it, mm. maybe you have a better way to frame it. 
but my mother, right? I was raised by a single mother, um, come from German, Pennsylvania, Dutch, you know, middle-class neighborhood. Um, she, in the, in the, she was born in 1947. So to kind of give a backdrop of the history, I think is really important because at those particular times, there wasn't, there wasn't the conversation about healing. And so we bring what we have, we pass that on. My mother, um, expressed her trauma in her home in her, and it reflected in her choices of where she lived. It reflected in her choices of, her choices reflected how she felt about herself. And it's, that's where I, I know it's harm, but does that necessarily mean it's intentional harm? And for a long time, Harriet, I believed that my mother's harm was intentional, right? Towards myself, my sister, my brother. However, with more awareness, I'm seeing that she simply was showing up with the best that she knew how, right? And that her brain had kind of been hijacked <laughs> in a sense. Um, and the lack of resources. And I think about her level of responsibility that she had to carry, given the fact that now we're having the conversation about race. Mm, she was a white woman with children from, you know, different backgrounds and cultures. Our fathers were all from different backgrounds and cultures. And I, I think about that a lot. It actually is very relatable now for me. So the harm that was imposed was not only my mother, but also um, the systems, right? The institutions, the institutions and the undersourced community that I lived in, who's accountable to offer wealth in those communities? Is it the community members? Is it just the, the people who are the city councilmen that are appointed or is it a collective? And so I look at that and I look at um, the educational piece in school, right? The fact that you had teachers that gave so much that lived in the neighborhood, but there weren't a lot of opportunities to grow and being in fourth and fifth grade and having met the mark of being like on principles honor roll. I remember being on honor roll and I was like, yay, you know, but then meeting the mark and then you're like, oh, the next time they call your name at assembly, you're like principles honor roll. And I'm like, oh, that's awesome. But I didn't understand the depths of that, right? Like, again, the school was undersourced um, and very limited to what we were being offered at that level did not mean that we didn't have the capacity at that school to achieve, right? And then who was carrying that, that um, inspiration? So harm. <laughs> um, 
definitely the neighborhood reflected the symptoms of the social diseases that we're still facing today. Very you know? interesting. Yeah. So we have um, in other programs um, spoken about adverse childhood experiences or better known as ACEs. Mm -hmm. And it just so fascinates me that for so long, this was not recognized as having an impact on children and what comes later. That um, if you had a parent in prison, if you grew up in poverty, if there was violence in your neighborhood or your household, and there are about 10 factors that um, have been isolated as, as uh, having a very strong impact on what happens to children and what, what they do with those things that they have no control over. So in your case, um, I'm sure there were several of those adverse childhood experiences. Um, what, what do you see as um, their impact on what happened to you? Do you see the connection? Oh, 100%. Yeah, I've taken yeah, I've taken the test a few times. I'm like, oh, maybe the answers will change. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, that optimism never stops. But right. Right. Um, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, but it inspires more curiosity to understand. And I came across research that you know PTSD was pegged as something back in 1980. And you have post-traumatic stress disorder, which is in alignment with the impacts of ACEs. You know, the two are definitely in a relationship. Right. And so it's knowledge that we've been aware of or the, the scholars or the more, you know, people who are, have more information or, um, have been aware of. Is that knowledge truly being passed on? Right? To That's the question. That is the question. Or is there a negligent handoff? Is it, is the question, is the knowledge being passed on or are we, are we applying that knowledge that we, we now have and changing what happens to kids in the criminal justice system? That to me is the question. Um, it, it, the marriage has to be of both. We know what those experiences are and what they can do to kids, but do we take that into account when a child comes into court? That's the question, right? Correct. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and were, were, were they taken into account, those adverse um, childhood experiences in your case? Well, absolutely not. They were unaware. You know, they were unaware of the judge, my attorney, the district attorney, they were even unaware of their power of discretion. Okay. So that in itself is very telling. And ACEs was not even anything that was part of the narrative. And um, I was a child and I was, I was, how do I say this? 
I was viewed as having um, a prostitute relationship with my trafficker, as if it was my responsibility and that was something that I chose to do, um, you know, and that's not the case. That was the understanding of, of the court at the time. Mm -hmm. And right, so ACEs. How old? How old at that point, Sarah? So I was 16 when I was arrested. I turned 16 in January and I was arrested in March. But and, before um, that, I'm, I'm asking you before that, mm -hmm. there was, um, you know, that relationship. So I met, you, yeah, and, I was sorry. 11. I was yeah. 11 and I have records that from 87, I was nine. And I have records from 1988 and 89 when I was already being introduced and being over like handled within the, the mental health facilities, like um, attempted suicides, you know, those kind of things. And mm -hmm. so no, the system wasn't prepared to even understand that. And, and that's certainly, I would think, what you are trying to do today is to enlighten people. And that's what I'm trying to do, too, to help them understand that they're not, it's not a separate thing. It, I think maybe um, we're too quick to say, well, but that happened a long time ago. What, what does that have to do with anything? Not so. Not it's so. still happening. Of course. Of course. So, you know, that's, that's my hope. I'm sure it's your hope that we incorporate what we now know. And, and when you went to trial, as you just said, uh, the awareness was not there, but it is now. It is now. Yes. Um, uh, one of the questions I want to ask you, we, we have about five minutes left for this segment. And I know you're going to come back and talk to us again, which is going to be great. Were, were there mentors along the way who made a significant difference in your life, whether in prison or after you got out? Yes. Yes, there were mentors, definitely, that made a significant difference oh, yeah. in my life. Yeah. I believe in the power. I, I think there is so much power in one mentor. Just that's all it takes is one. It's nice one. if there are more. <laughs> nice if there's more, right? Yeah. Well, that's that's fantastic that you you were able to have that in, in your life. Um, you you gave an analogy in an article I read um, of a small seedling trying to grow, but the plant's growth was stunted because people threw dirt on, on top of the plant. And I guess maybe that's where the mentor possibly comes in to, instead of throwing dirt on the plant, to water the plant and make sure it has enough sun and nurture. I think if, if a child who's missing that along the way can find it, 
I think that can change the trajectory of their lives, right? Would you say? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, I, I, there's so many things I wanted to ask you. Um, we can certainly um, continue next time. Um, is there anything that you want to close with uh, before we, we wrap? We only have about two minutes. Just that I think that the fact that we're having this this open conversation is amazing. You know, it's going to open up so much more. So thank you. And um, oh, so more welcome. inclusive, the better. <laughs> yes, absolutely. That's wonderful. I, so I... I will talk more um, next time, and um, I really appreciate your time and your willingness to uh, share your story with our listeners. And every time that you do that, I am sure that somebody maybe has an aha moment saying, gee, I, I didn't know that. And isn't that what you want to accomplish? Right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. All right. Well, thank you so much. and. We Thank will you. definitely see you next time on Pursuing Justice. Um, I encourage my listeners to tune in and join us again. And thanks for listening.